Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Tapping Up podcast with myself, Daryl, and as always, Ian. Uh, getting closer and closer to Bonfire Night, and there is a few explosions that we're going to talk about in, in this particular episode. Uh, if you hear any explosions in the background, it's because I'm in Ponte and people, for whatever reason, like to set fireworks off on the 2nd of November, a little bit early, lads. Um, it's just a bit annoying, really, fireworks these days. Never Do really you want mean. to uh, share with our listeners um, your irrational fear of trick-or-treaters that you uh, hid away from the other day as well? Is, is, is that worth right. uh, giving a little I'm pretty sure uh, we mentioned this. I'm pretty sure we mentioned this last year, but I don't have any random fears, apart from drowning. That's because I nearly drowned as a kid because my mum and dad don't love me and left me unsupervised. Tried to drown you in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that was last week. Um, but I have an irrational fear of trick-or-treaters and we're not talking sort of older trick-or-treaters we're talking any trick-or-treaters so if i see like a three-year-old waddling about in a costume with their mum and dad and they're knocking on door i have since i was young hidden upstairs and that doesn't really transcribe very well as a 29 year old man when your fiance is having to deal with said trick-or-treaters while you're hiding upstairs with all the lights off in the hope that no one will knock on it. But in my defence, the fear comes from the fact that when I was about like nine or ten, I used to live in Belle Isle, and anyone who is from Leeds area knows exactly what Belle Isle is. It is probably the trampiest, most disgusting part of Leeds, other than uh, what, Hare Hills and things like that. Hills. And there was a drug dealer at the bottom of the street, for example, of where we used to live. But as I'm walking around, the only time I've ever been trick-or-treating, I'm dressed as a devil. I had a little uh, fork, a little three-pronged fork. And these older kids came up to us in masks with a fucking knife. Again, I'm like nine or ten and said, give me all your sweets now. And I'm like, <laughs> so I didn't know what to do, panicking. And then they just went up to me and slit the bottom of my bag. It was like a little um, orange pumpkin bag. They slit it and put their bag underneath to call me sweets, and I just went home crying. So that's where that comes from. Well, you've never t- you've never shared with me that full reason of the irrational fear. I thought you were going to say something like the drug dealer mugged you, or rather than <laughs> trick or treating, slipped some crack into your bag, which you mistakenly took for uh, a, a cherry sweet or something like that. But I suppose that at least gives some background to your completely irrational fear. Do you not think that? It's and again, this isn't. I'm trying not to be influenced by that, that bias of hating Halloween and trick or treat, and also Oogie Boogie from um, Nightmare Before Christmas. He's a scary fucker. Don't like him either. Um, but do you not think it's very strange that in this day and age, we're essentially allowing people to go and beg at the door, just like just leave me alone. I don't. It's an American scared. thing, isn't it? It did like again. Yeah. You, you say you went trick or treating. It didn't exist when I was a kid. Never went trick or treating in my whole life don't remember when around what age I would have been that that came into play probably when I was in my teens but I never went a single time as a kid it didn't exist it just wasn't a thing and it's just something that one of those like cultural appropriations that we steal from America from too many shitty American films and people start doing but yeah when I showing my age back in the day there was no such thing as trick-or-treating certainly down south anyway what were you saying just before we came live here? You were saying about there's no such as a mischief night down south. Yeah, I'd never even heard of that before I came up north, which is your version. Like, is that not the day before fireworks night where people go around firing fireworks up the street and fucking just causing general mischief, as the name would They put them on suggest. fireworks through like letterboxes and stuff. Um, and like I said, they were talking obviously just before this episode, but depending on what area you're from, depends on the severity of said mischief. There are ones where people just launch rocks at your windows and stuff. Um, although, again, that's probably just like a normal Tuesday in Belle Isle these days. Um, so it was hard to differentiate from that. But yeah, strange tradition. I don't, it don't was, really it was at uni, I found out about it, because uh, one of my mates who uh, I ended up moving to Leeds uh, to live with, um, when I first was was studying, uh, was from Hull, uh, from Hull, and uh, on our first like bonfire like, at uni at eighteen, he's like, right, we're going out with mischief night, getting some fireworks and shit. 
and all the rest of my mates were from down south and we're like what the fuck are you talking about and he then elaborated on said night and um yeah we went out and caused a fair bit of mischief that night uh, but yeah that I'd never heard of it it's not a southern thing that exists I get maybe it does these days but again uh, I'd never even heard of it till someone from up north told me about it it's because you don't really do stuff like that down south. You just go around stabbing. We're, civil, each other. we're civilized people as opposed to barbarians, yeah, yeah. like you, like you are here up north. Oh, absolutely. I mean, London, obviously, widely known for its civilized nature, and there's definitely loads of attacks not happening whatsoever down south as we speak at this moment in time. Um, but as I said, on the subject of fireworks, quite an explosive Saturday night. Watching uh, what many predicted to be a very one-sided fight. We had our doubts about how difficult it would have been for Fury. I think despite both of us wanting something in particular to happen, and we'll get on to it in just a second, we both expected, I think, Fury to roll over him. Um, obviously, we're talking about Fury and Ngannou. Roll over him, easy win. You know, the world champion should absolutely be decimating a, a zero and zero boxer. Didn't quite happen like that, though, did it? Well, I mean, you've got, I think, in, you've got to look at it from two sides, which was it was an amazing performance from Nganu, uh with, in equal measure, an absolutely appalling performance from Fury. Um, I'd been out, I went out with a couple of lads, played a few frames of snooker, and we got back to it. One of the most annoying things I think I've ever witnessed was we, I'd looked up the ring walk being like half ten, so we're still playing snooker at nine o'clock. I happen to say, like, come on, lads, we need to wrap this up. We wouldn't mind watching the, you know, the, the top three fights. Happen to text you to say, all oh, right, what point in the card is it? And you're like, it's the co-main. I'm like, what the fuck? So we cr- smash through this game at frame of snooker, fly back, um, catch the end of the last fight and the KO, which I think was, what, around about quarter to ten ish something like yeah, that yeah i think i posted i'm just trying to quick yeah so wardley left the ring at a quarter to 10 and nganu completed his ring half past 11 mate it was ridiculous i mean like what the fuck who the fuck is watching this fight that wants to watch big colorful globes and dancers and rappers i, I love my rap never even heard of these people luckily one of the lads i was with uh, from um, from the family, he's a younger lad, Geordie's 25, and I'm like, Geordie, who the fuck is this? And he's like, don't you know who Little Baby is? And I'm like, never heard of him in my whole life. And he was shit. And I get that they wanted to put on a show. I get that's the, that seems to be the Saudi way, but to wait that length of time for that fight was ridiculous. And I was on the verge of fucking turning it off. We'd ordered a, a Ruby Murray so we were all right in that while we were waiting for that, having a few beers, had the curry, but I would, it was driving me nuts, mate, how long it was until they actually kicked off the fight. Well, it were all part of, and again, there's a little bit more about it at the end when we've spoken about Nganu and Fury and what happens next, but this is all part of that Riyadh season, isn't it? And it's like a state-sponsored annual entertainment and sports festival by um, Saudi Arabia, and they try to put on all these shows, it's like, imagine uh, Leeds Christmas Market, but on steroids and what an extra 10, 15 million pounds thrown into it, something like that. It's extravagant. It's over the top. Everyone is very um, stately, should we say. I'm trying to think of a nice, polite way to say it. They cheered, obviously, when they're, um, I think the nicest way to put it, can't say leader, can I? Is it like the chairman of the general entertainment authority or something silly like that. And when he comes on the screen, everyone's cheering and you wouldn't get that over here, would you, if you had like Rishi Sunak played uh, as a little clip just before the uh, Challenge Cup final or something in rugby, you just get boos and people... Can't help but feel there's a little bit of like North Korea in that though, that if everybody yeah, doesn't absolutely. cheer, then fucking they're getting carried out and fuck beat out of them in the back. But um, yeah, it was... Some would call it a spectacle. I would call it nonsense for boxing fans. No boxing fan I know wants to watch a load of little kids dancing around on a stage. Before no, a I mean, you would surely do it. For me, I get why they do it before the main event, because everyone's tuning in at that point. As soon as they hear, funnily enough, exactly like you say, the co-main event is done or the chief uh, main event is done. Everyone runs in like, right, put it on, bang it on, sit in front of TV, get a pint, you know, go to a pub, 
and then you get this big spectacle because you don't have a choice but to watch it. But they have, I don't know if you've seen the rest of the events that they've got on, they've invested so much money into this. They've got like, um, and without going down a rabbit hole, obviously we had Tyson Fury and Garnu. They've got WWE Crown Jewel, which I think is like a new pay-per-view that they've got in November. I think it's actually this weekend. They've got the Riyadh Seasons Tennis Cup with people like Djokovic there. Uh, UFC Fight Night 236 will be held in uh, Riyadh Season. I think is that's is it 2nd of March next year. Um, you've got the Supercoppa di Espana uh, and you've got the Supercoppa Italiana. And obviously, uh, as has been announced, Tyson Fury versus Alexander Usyk, which is now in February, um, obviously with a date to become money. And there's a lot of uh, principle about this event. We're getting sidetracked here, but I'm going to throw a quick question at you off topic then, just that how long did you say before we see, it's been talked about before and always fought back, how long before we see a round of Premier League games over there? Ooh, a longer time than you think, because I think a lot of, I get what FIFA would do. And if FIFA were involved specifically... The Premier League, if they're, if they're, they're going to get chuck a billion pounds just to have a round yeah, over and, there. and there's, there's the there's, difference. There's, that's what's going to happen, isn't it? But there's been talk about Premier League games being played in foreign countries for quite a number of years. I get that this is significantly different, the amount of money that they're seeing things these days. Um, obviously, Qatar will probably get involved because Qatar and Saudi Arabia have a rivalry, all this sort of stuff. I think it will be significantly harder than you would first expect because of the fact that as soon as you start playing the Premier League over there, you're then taking away from the Saudi Pro League, which they don't necessarily want. And in the same way that it's taken away from that, it's adding um, an added competition to the Premier League, which I don't think the Premier League want either. I think they want to stay very separate and keep things to themselves. European games maybe, but I don't think they'll be in Saudi for quite a while. Interesting. I could see it happening quicker, sooner rather than later, purely on the money, given how much money they've got, the sport washing. We talk about money talks every episode. There's going to come a point where the Premier League get offered a number to say, yeah, OK, we'll have a round of games over there, if you ask me. And I would say that would be in the next two or three years. It wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, we go off topic anyway. But um, the one thing I did think, I mean, personally, I thought Fury did just about enough to win the fight watching it live it was fairly fair few beers deep and obviously you know with the lads you, you can talk and shit and um i thought he did just about enough uh myself to win it uh which obviously he, he did what i then did which i thought would be a more interesting point is my missus was on a hendu so i had the day to myself so the next morning when i woke up um i went back and watched it without the without the commentary so you get none of the influence of the underdog. And I basically went through and scored it myself, being a bit of a geek. I had no problem admitting that. So I've got a little very, very brief round by round because we're not going to bore the shit out of people. But I think it's worth running through if you're good with that. Um, I mean, I've got round one. Big body shot from Fury starts. Fury's obviously scared of Ngannou's power and he's, he's he's keeping very clearly on the outside. He's landing with that jab, which we know is, is money in the bank. A couple of wild swings from Ngannou, which is when you start to think, yeah, he's going to get exposed here. He's just swinging and missing. Can't quite find his range. Did land a couple of good body shots. Fury lands again. Um, Ngannou's just loading up for that right hand, isn't he? For the first couple of rounds, you could see him. He just got it cocked there like a fucking machine gun, ready to drop it fucking like a nuclear bomb. Uh, and he was just hoping he could get within range and Fury wasn't letting him within range. Um, so I gave the first round 10-9 Fury. And you could see when he went back to the corner, Ngannou's face was touched up a bit. They did a little bit of work on him, you know, getting the swelling down. So he'd obviously taken a few few punches Second round, um, some cleaner shots from Fury. Good uppercut from Ngannou in the clinch. Jabs again from Fury. And I had Fury as the busier fighter. That was second round was certainly one of the more boring rounds. 10-9 Fury for me. I mean, you say that as well, just on that. That's the round, I think, that Ngannou cut him. So that's got... There's the controversy about Fury mm-hmm. lands more punches. And again, we'll, we'll go through that as you go through it. But... 
the power punches definitely were landed by Nganu and but was more severe than I think most were expecting. I know it were only a small amount of blood coming out of it and he looked like he were fine with it. I think it's one of those where he's taken a punch. He's like, hang on a minute, I can't believe how hard this guy is punching me. Well, he is the officially the hardest punching man ever in the world. I mean, obviously, that you know those tests only go back for so many years. So there may well have been people before that, but currently in the world, he is the hardest punching man ever. So um, that's not really a surprise. Round three is obviously by far and away the most enjoyable round, the one we need to spend the most time on. It's a pretty class close start to the round. They both seem to start loosening up. I think Fury's starting to feel like maybe I'm in the ascendancy here. I'm doing all right. It's pretty close. And then, bam, out of nowhere, drops him on his ass in Garnier, doesn't he? Drops him. Um, Fury looks okay. Doesn't look, you know, Wilder-esque out. You know, he looked down and he looked more surprised. It struck me like, fucking hell, this guy can hit. So that was clearly a 10-8 round in Garnu. Um, one thing that we both found and a video surfaced later, and I'll post this uh, on, on the socials afterwards, but um, we joked before about how long uh, Fury got to stand up against Wilder in that punch. It's insane how long he gets to get up from this punch from Garnu, And the video will show actually has a countdown on it and says it was 24 seconds, not 10. I disagree because for the last probably three seconds, Fury's clearly ready to go. But that makes it, even on a a generous estimation, a 21 count he was given. So there is definitely an argument. And I know we disagree on the the final result, which we'll get to. That could easily have been done and dusted and Garni knocking him out, Fury not getting up in time. I mean, the only difference I would say on that to the the Wilder fight, for example, this isn't a case of he's down for nine seconds and then he gets up on the the 10th. It's he's up, isn't he, after three or four and he's sort of jogging around trying to show that he's fine. He's clearly not knocked out. There's none of that. But the shock in his face, I think, will live with me for quite a long period of time. And the fact that Nganu goes up to him and starts to do a little shimmy in front of him while he's on the floor, it's got to be humiliating. I don't care what he says. I don't care if he complains. Oh, I'm never in for this uh, for the legacy. I'm just here for the money. Just here to be the best. All that nonsense. You get knocked down in the third round. And don't get me wrong. Nganu is a scary man. We've been through that. But if you get knocked down by a zero and zero fighter, and the whole world is watching, then I'm sorry, but something isn't quite right there. Whether it's to do with your preparation, which we agree with. He clearly hadn't prepared uh, for a, a proper fight. He thought he was going to walk over him. But these types of things that happen in boxing, whenever you watch a boxer, a little bit like AJ, and we, again, we've spoken about that, when someone is put on their ass, properly put on their ass by someone that they're not expecting, they think, hang on a minute, what's going on? That doubt creeps in, and all of a sudden, their career can very, very quickly go off the the edge of a cliff essentially so it'd be yeah, interesting to see what the you could see if his chin had gone and for me that had to be a 10 10 8 round to, to Nganu and then on the combined scorecards for me that ties it up at 28 28 round four Fury's clearly looking more cautious now after that you can see in his face he's like fucking hell I need to stay away from this motherfucker staying at range gets a bit of good body work in there's quite a lot of holding in the round again I think while he's trying to probably regain his wits from getting knocked down. A couple of big shots from Fury, actually. Again, very, very close round. Fury does make him miss a bit. I think Ngarnu probably got a little bit cocky and started to, again, throw some bombs. So I had that 10-9 Fury. So that makes it 38-37. Round five, both come out swinging at the start. And I thought Garnu started to look gassed. You could see him breathing really heavily, and I'm starting to worry a little bit here, thinking as he as he punched himself out, Fury's jabbing and clinching, um, making him miss a lot, and that jab is just money in the bank. And I gave that one another ten nine Fury. Um, I think that was the only round that I would happily say is a definite Fury round because that I think he ends round five with a bit of a combination, and Ngannou looked a little bit not rocked. Rocks is the wrong word, but he certainly looked like he felt it. And I think that's the first time in the fight that you think, okay, Fury's now showing a little bit more and he's getting a bit more into the rhythm. 
So that puts it to 48-46 on my scoring. Round seven, pretty quiet, not much being thrown. Again, Nganu starting to look really tired at this point. Good uppercut upper, upper from Nganu, but just Fury's just jabbing his head off again. Another 10 round, 10-9 uh, round for me, Fury uh, on that one. So that takes it to, um, what have I got there, 48-46. Uh, round eight. Jabbing again from Fury, keeping it range. Um, big uppercut landed from Fury. Good shots, sorry, from Nganu. Good shots from Nganu and three pretty solid ones to the face. And he starts turning it on with a minute to go. And he suddenly, this is the point you think to yourself, do you know what? This motherfucker's got a second wind. He's now suddenly turned it around. It was a close round. I gave that one 10-9 Nganu. Um, so that puts it back to uh, 76-75 to Fury. Got round nine, uh, very slow round, not much happening uh, at all. It was probably the worst round of the fight. Last minute of the round was just a little bit between them. I actually rather potentially controversially scored that one a draw, 10 all. I thought there was nothing in it, and they were both both shit in that round. Um so that would put it to 80, 86, 85. Um, you then have the final round, which is Ngannou's the aggressor. He's throwing and swinging. He's obviously thinking to himself, I'm probably not going to win this on points just because I think the way that we all said how corrupt boxing is, he needed to knock him out. Um, it was very, very close that round and you could easily make a point for it going either way. I personally gave that one 10-9 Fury. So that made an overall score for me of 96-94 uh, to Fury. But I'll be honest with you, I could not argue if someone said to me that last round went to Nganu and had that gone to Nganu on my scoring, that would have been 95-95 and a draw. Well, what did you have it as, your final? 96-94 to Fury. I just don't see it. I, I mean, I get that there were more punches landed and the jabs in that sort of sense were uh, clearly Fury was the jabber. Fury was trying to do a little bit more potentially. But Nganu was absolutely all over him and he absolutely manhandled him in some of the rounds to the point where Fury looked completely and utterly spooked and he didn't know what to do. I thought it was a really, really clever game plan, plan from uh, Nganu because he didn't push forward. Fury would try to goad him throughout the fight to try and meet him in the middle in that sense, because obviously Fury can then pick him off, can jab, can move. But Ngannou was staying back, was biding his time, picking his punches. And the majority, from what I've seen, of people who are deciding whether they thought one person or the other one, it seems to be divided between, funnily enough, the boxing world thinks that Fury outclassed Ngannou and certainly beat him, if not comprehensively, but overall, and the MMA world thinks that Nganu won, and Nganu was the aggressor, and Nganu had picked up more points throughout. I think the 96 93 scorecard is a disgrace. Outrageous. Outrageous. Unbelievable. I don't know where that comes from. I think Rogan turned around at one point and said he should be in jail <laughs> for his yeah, scorecard. It's, 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 it's never that. Horrendous. It's a lot closer than that. And as you say, the, the one thing I would say, Fury won but ultimately lost. If there was ever yeah. a, an example of a Pyrrhic victory, that was it. Nganu may have lost the fight, but certainly won the war. He came out as smelling roses, dumped the fucking lineal heavyweight champion of the world who's undefeated on his ass, and made him look worried. And I'll be honest, the, the biggest winner out of all of it for me is fucking Usyk. You could see that fucking smile on his face when they kept cutting to him, and he's thinking to myself... I'm going to fucking smash you come December, which now has been put back. You, you told me earlier in the week to, 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 Feb, to February, yeah. but he is sat there smiling his ass off. I thought there's a clip where Usyk is cheering Fury on and trying to basically give him tips and pointers through the fight. And someone asks him after the fight, why he did that. And he said it was because he was exceptionally worried throughout the fight that he wasn't going to get his undisputed fight it was due at the end of December or obviously now we know it to be February because he thought that Fury were going to get knocked out 
That's how I, severe. I, I, don't, bl- yeah, I, I, I don't blame him. He doesn't want to lose that fight. He wants the chance to be the un, you know only. I think he'll join us. There only been three two weight undisputed champions in the world. And it's never been a four weight. Uh, sorry, there's never been um, a four belt undisputed uh, heavyweight champion, has there? I don't think. I think uh, Lennox, Lennox Lewis wasn't. was the last. I think was he not? Was he four belt? I think oh. Lewis was full undisputed, if I'm not mistaken, but he was, I'm positive he was the last. He's definitely but, undisputed, but is that not before the four belt era? era? Uh, no, I, I, you check, you Google while I've got a few stats, but I think he was, but Usyk would obviously have the chance to then be the undisputed at not only cruiserweight as well as heavyweight, which has definitely never been done. And as you say, I think there's only three other fighters that have been undisputed at more than one weight. Um, yeah. I mean, one thing I've... There hasn't been one since Lewis, anyway. The um, Yeah, so I thought... Lewis, I mean, I love fucking Lewis. Lewis was my hero as a kid um, with Tyson. And again, watch that, watching that fight when I was at uni was, was like a dream come true. But just, again, just to add a bit more onto my version of the scoring, they've, I've got the, the, the CompuBox stats here. So you've got total jabs landed to throne. Fury was 39 jabs out of 137. Ngannou, 22 out of 115. So clearly heavily in Ngannou's favour there. Power punches. Fury threw 32 and landed 86. Ngannou uh, landed 37 out of 116. So the more powerful shots and significant, which we both agree on, only by five. And he threw a lot more. Uh, total punches landed uh, to thrown in Fury 71 out of 223, in Garnu 59 out of 231. So I would personally say those stats as well do back up when you look at all three together that Fury shades it. We've said this before that I completely disagree. You could have punching stats are very, very much irrelevant when they're that close. If it showed that he had landed 200 punches and Ngannou had landed 20 or 30, then absolutely. But punching stats of that nature, there's nothing to say that, and you'd have to go back and count individually, and I'll be honest, I don't have the patience or so. You'd have to count how many punches are landed every round. There could be a round where Fury lands 50 punches in one, as a certain amount in the rest, which would absolutely skew those stats and make them look far more significant than they actually are. So I get what you're saying, and I get what other people are saying. I still think Ngannou won this fight, and I think the only reason he's lost is because of the politics of boxing. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't disagree with you. I mean, I, I came out pretty sm- smelling pretty much of roses. I think I texted you my two bets, didn't I, um, that I had and I only had a couple of fiver bets, but I had Fury to win on points with him knocking him down. I think that was eight and a half to one and that came in. And then I had Fury to win the fight and the ninth round starting. I think that was only like five to one. So a couple of fivers on those, but nice couple of little, uh, little bit of money coming in from those. It's always nice when you have a little punt like that and it comes in, but um Question for you then, what's next for Ngannou? Uh, we know what's next for your Fury, so there's no point really discussing that. But Ngannou, where yeah. does he go from here? So Fury, for him next, loses the title to Usyk. So as you say, we don't need to go into that into much detail. And I can't wait for that in February. Uh, I was hoping it would be just before Christmas because it would have been a lovely Christmas present to see that smug smile wiped clearly off that man's face. Um, I think Ngannou... He's going to be ranked by, I think it was the WBO, WBC, WBC, WBC into the top uh, 10. In the top 10. Um, So, I mean, realistically, at his age, does he have much left in terms of time or does he go straight into the bigger fights, which people obviously want to see? Um, Not necessarily for the titles. I, I can't see him ever fighting Usyk, for example, or... Um, going into a an undisputed heavyweight champion fight, unless he absolutely steamrolls through people in the next couple of years. But are we thinking more lower? Are we saying things like 
Chisora, uh, or are we saying that he's fighting someone in the top 10? Because he's fighting someone well, he's in the top 10. He's come out and said that his next fight will be in the PFL. So back to MMA. Um, I would be surprised if I'm honest, because even though we know he's got a sweet deal with the, the, the PFL and all props to him for getting the guaranteed £2 million purse for anyone brave enough to step into the ring with him. Um, I think they reckon by what I read, he made 15 mil from this fight. So infinite, inf- that's probably five times what he's made in his career at the UFC, at a conservative guess, if not more. So I've got to be honest, if I was him and at his age, I would probably be of the view Fuck MMA, I'm going to carry on boxing. I think given that it could easily go down as the best ever professional debut of a fighter, and I think you could, very, very arguable, but given the calibre he was up against and how well he did, he's got to be in that conversation. I think there's two names for me that spring out that are pretty obvious, and I think both would take it, would be Wilder or AJ disagree i think i would like to see it i i don't see them going for that at this stage i think so i don't think they end going to the route of potentially putting that into doubt the wbc if he's in the top 10 have a fair number of undefeated fighters that he could definitely go after you've got for example frank sanchez who um has won his last two fights i think he's got a 20 and 0 record you've got Jared Anderson, who was 16 and over, he had quite a number of people. He would be worth there. The fight that I would want to see, I don't know if it would be a big seller, don't get me wrong, and you would have to try and angle it solely, I think, personally, on Nganu's name in the wider audience. But Mahmudov is a fantastic fighter. He's a KO specialist, obviously Russian. He's a very, very scary-looking man. He's 34. He's wanting to go through the rankings. I think he's ranked currently third by the WBC. So for me, I would see AJ and Wilder, and I'd say Mahmoudov versus um, Nganu, and then the winners of the subsequent fights against each other. See, I, I just think because of his age and how well he did, he's got the world at his feet at the moment. And if you're his manager and you're his advisor, you are saying... Fucking make the money while you can. As you say, he's 37, so he's not going to have that many fights left. I think he will just target those big boys straight away. I could be wrong, and you could argue that some of the people you've said would be more deserving of a now 0-1 fighter, given his record, and, and go straight into the top 10. But I can tell you now... None of those fights that you've mentioned are going to make him a remote amount of money compared to 15 mil that he's just made. And he would probably make more fighting in the back in the PFL than against any of those guys. So I think he's at the stage of the, the whole point he left the UFC was money, ultimately, despite what he says. And he could put it any other way. I think he's chasing the dollars. So I think I can only see him trying to line up against big boys. Um, those two that I've said... You could argue Ruiz, maybe. Does he fancy a a chance against someone like Ruiz who does have a name and probably would sell a fair bit? Um, Obviously, as I've got to interject there, Ruiz Ruiz Jr. doesn't sell more than Matt Mudov. Ruiz Jr. is currently fifth, I think. He is only a big name because of what happened with AJ. And I I would disagree. That makes him a bigger name. That makes makes him sell more because he's the guy that. But if you look at it like that, you've got the guy that knocked down Anti Joshua against the guy that knocked down Fury. There's your selling point straight off the it's bat. It's not. It's not because you could say, right, let's get Dillian White in. Dillian White knocked or staggered Fury, uh, not Fury, sorry, staggered AJ, and Parker put up a very good fight in that he wasn't able to be knocked down by AJ. So you could go down that route of picking random people up. But for me, I think that he would be very, I, I understand the money sense, but I think he'd be very, very struggling, that's not a real sentence, let's say he would be struggling very, very much to try and get a fight against Joshua Wilder when they themselves will also want the big bucks. Joshua Wilder sells far more than Joshua Ngannou or Wilder Ngannou, so why would they look at that fight instead? I get that they'll probably think, I could easily beat Ngannou. I think Fury was off that. 
But I don't think they should go for that. And I don't think they will go for that. I think you'll see one more fight for Ngannou against a quote-unquote lesser name. Makmudov is the one. Makmudov would be an absolutely outstanding fight. Someone would get sparked out and then put him up against Wilder Joshua. Time will tell. But um, yeah, I think he's headhunting like his boxing style and just going for the big boys myself. But um be an interesting one. And as you say, he came out of that smelling like roses and... The one question that we had and was emphatically answered was, does that power transfer from four ounce gloves to 12 ounce gloves? Yes, is the answer. And that makes him the scariest man in the world. The baddest man on the planet, regardless of who won the battle of the baddest man in the planet. There is only one baddest man on the planet. And not being funny again, we're not not body shaming here, but look at the two of them standing next to each other. Who, if you, if you, uh, let's go Game of Thrones for your, for your life. You've got to have what you've got to pick one of them to fight for you. Who are you choosing? I'm choosing Nganu every day of the week. Yeah. Just because I don't not say Nganu, to be honest, I think he'd kill me if I said no, but um, yeah, as you say, regardless of who won the fight, ultimately, the winner is Francis Ngannou. Move on to MMA second. It's a bit of a, a janky order. Um, we had to start with, obviously, Fury and, and uh, Ngannou, but that also does a perfect segue on to MMA. Not really much has happened, in all honesty. We've got a fight night this weekend. I think we're probably going to deal with it based on the main event only. don't think there's anything else that's worth picking out in that uh, in that card. And I think you've got a little bit about 1FC as well, which we'll come on to at the end. Um, Almeida versus Lewis at the fight night. It's in Sao Paulo, I believe. Correct. So uh, Almeida uh, is a incredible black belt, absolutely top of the food chain, and you do not want to go to the ground with him. But over the, the short space of his UFC career, has seemed to start to add a bit of boxing uh, and and power to his uh, stand-up game. He's taking on the mighty Derek Lewis. Um, So ironically, Derek Lewis, and I don't know how this is the case, is ranked 10th currently as heavyweight and Jaiton is number nine. Uh, Lewis does, just because we've talked about it, have a win over Ngannou in what is easily the worst MMA fight ever for anyone who wants to be bored senseless for 15 minutes to see two of the hardest punches in the world ever not punch each other. That's a fight to watch or to avoid. It'd be more the case. Um, uh, And Lewis is just a KO artist. Most KOs in not only the heavyweight division's history, but the UFC history full stop. So um, this, for me, is Lewis sparks him out. Almira taps him out. Simple as that. That's how I see it going. Do you see Lewis having any chance in this fight? It's definitely not going the distance. We know that. Lewis always has a chance. Lewis is, after Ngannou, probably the hardest hitting person in in the UFC. And there have been plenty of people that, again, he's not the most shredded of guys. He carries more body fat than he probably needs. He's a, he's a hilarious human being. He, he talks a lot of shit. Uh, as I said, I, I was telling you, I'm not sure if you've ever seen it, but there's a, uh, he wins a fight um, a number of years ago and he's getting interviewed by Joe Rogan after the fight. He just starts taking his shorts off in the middle of the ring and Joe Rogan's like, what are you doing, Derek? And he's like, my balls are hot. That was literally his response back. Is um, so he's he's a, he's a hilarious dude, but again, in the same way that we it, we we kind of talked about um, before the Francis and, and Fury fight, that Ngannou had a puncher's chance. Lewis always has a puncher's chance because he is a ferocious puncher, and pe- many many people have slept on him because of the way he looks and underestimate that power. And he's got that same kind of power as Ngannou that shocks people when they get a punch from him where you can see in their face they're like fuck me I did not expect that to hit as hard as that so um good he- uh headlining fight not 
really a great deal on the rest of the card. I mean, I'm just going to throw out for the co-main event, you've got a, an unranked welterweight bout. You've got Gabriel Bonfim, a Brazilian guy, quite highly rated, who has looked okay in the UFC from what I've seen. And he's fighting uh, Nicholas Dalby, who uh, is a former Cage Rage Warriors champion in the UK. So I think he's Danish, like certainly European uh, and quite well known over on the the English UFC, sorry, English MMA scene. He fought in a lot of English promotions. Um, that'll probably be a pretty good scrap. No, the only other one is middleweight. You've got Rodolfo with uh, Vieira, who is probably one of the top ten black belts ever in jiu-jitsu there was a, a load of hype around when he was going to make the transition just because again you talk about layers that is the the upper echelon of jiu-jitsu Vieira and he came out and fucking smashed a couple of people but then I think he's taken at least one if not two victories in between so he is a very interesting prospect um because if he gets you to the ground done game over Absolutely no chance you're getting up without getting submitted. The strangest thing about this event, and I had to look it up because I think the UFC app that you take a look at for identifying what's on the undercard, identifying who's who's fighting, etc., said that it's available on BBC Sport. So I, I've had a look at this. I can't find anything to say that it's on BBC Sport, and I can see only, as you would expect, because of the deal that they've got, that it's on TNT Sports. TNT. Yeah, maybe, I mean, it could just be, as you say, I obviously, look, look at it's the UFC uh, uh, app I look at for this, uh, and that's what it said. And I said exactly the same to you when we were discussing beforehand. That surprises me. So uh, I don't think that can be, that must just be a mistake, but I think it must be TNT or maybe they've got some certain deal that because it's a really bullshit event, maybe they've a bit like Amazon have with the Premier League. They occasionally have one or two rounds per season or whatever on that. Maybe the BBC have somehow managed to buy it. But if you've looked into it, it wouldn't surprise me if that's wrong. But yeah, that's what it's it says not. on the, the UFC. Yeah, if, if you are watching it this weekend, it's definitely not BBC. It's uh, TNT Sports. I think it'll be a little bit of a later one, won't it, if it's Brazil? Uh, yes, it will. Uh, well, it'll be either be a later one or an early one um, because um, of the time difference. According to this, if this is British Standard Time, it says 1am. So, yeah, it's a late one. I won't be staying up for that, personally. Nor me. Um, got to have a quick chat before we move on on uh, 1FC because um, very big event coming up. They tend to hold their events on a Friday. Um, so there's a big event tomorrow, uh, which is one fight night 16, Haggerty versus Andrade. Um where this is very interesting is, so we've talked about it before briefly, but for those not in the know, 1FC is a Singapore-based uh, promotion. It's probably the number two promotion in the world after uh, the UFC and is huge in Asia. So it has a lot of Asian fighters. What I really like about it is it mixes all variations of combat sports. So each card will have MMA, Muay Thai, kickboxing, and jiu-jitsu. So for a, a purist like me that loves a bit of everything, ticks every box. W- why this is such a particularly big event is um, they will actually be crowning their first ever two-sport champion. So and what I mean by that is you have the one bantamweight Muay Thai world champion, Jonathan Haggerty from the UK, absolutely excellent Muay Thai fighter, and very, very underrated. He is fighting the uh, 1FC Bantamweight MMA world champion, Fabricio Drade, for the division's vacant Bantamweight kickboxing belt. So you've got a Muay Thai fighter, MMA fighter, fighting under kickboxing rules. The winner will be, have two of those belts. So that's why it is quite an interesting um, event. Um, Haggerty, 
Um, very good elbows, as you'd expect from a Muay Thai fighter, and knees, and they are not allowed in kickboxing. So he will lose naturally two of his better weapons. Obviously, the uh, I don't know, I can't profess to know a great deal about Fabricio Andrade, whether he's got a particularly good ground game or not. But if he is just a jiu-jitsu guy, he's fucked, because this is obviously just kickboxing in terms of punches and kicks. But um, interesting idea, I thought. And I like the idea of putting the different sports together and having a combined champion. But if I had to guess, my money would be on Haggerty, given that Muay Thai is of a more similar rule set than MMA. It sounds a little bit like Doncaster Cage Warriors or whatever it was that we went to say. Just Don't obviously, you was- fucking dare. <laughs> I'm going to call up Chattery, who's the uh, CEO of One, and he will be suing you for slander for saying such an atrocious thing. I cannot believe you've just said that. It's pretty similar, though. If there's uh, there's different sports on the uh, the same card, obviously we experience it firsthand. Nearly got ourselves on Facebook TV or whatever nonsense it was live streamed on. It's similar, definitely similar. You need to have a word with yourself. This is. 25 levels above that shit and uh if you i know tomorrow you will probably be uh more engrossed which will come on to in the leeds uh leicester match but this will kick off probably uh around about nine o'clock i think something like that they often show it on their youtube channel because again they're trying to gather a bit of support it's not ever pay-per-views apart from in um asia but i would highly recommend Anyone who is bored on their Friday night tuning in for this one. In fact, I've just looked it up. It's on Prime, this one. So if you want to uh, watch it, it's on uh, Prime Video. There's a huge game on today. Because I suppose it's technically today when this goes out. We always need to stop doing that. But we'll get on to it. We'll get on to the biggest game of the year. Carve yourself in... down on the biggest let's, game let's... of the season. Let, let's, let's now that just... El Clasico is out of the way, let's 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 calm that down. It's the double L, the double L. Uh, um, start with the weekend's results, uh, Premier League, of course. We have to start with the Manchester Derby because we have both been questioning over the past few weeks just how long Ten Hag is going to get, and every week that passes by, I get closer and closer to thinking he's going to be struggling to be here by Christmas at Manchester United. Uh, I cannot agree. I mean, two, three nil losses at home in a week. Um, I mean, ultimately, there is no real shame in losing to... Um, uh, City. The best team in... Yeah, best yeah. in the league. Best team in, in, in the league and potentially Europe. Um, uh, you know, there is no shame in that. Three nil at home in a derby is a bit of a humbling, um, you know, you don't really want um, that. Uh, but then losing 3-0 at home in a cup match, when you'd be thinking that given how much they are struggling and if they were going to try and get maybe a trophy to get some kind of credence out of their season, they should have gone for that. And then they it wasn't Newcastle's first team. And whilst we've been checking it out, I've just looked and you will be not surprised to know Ten Hag is now the overwhelming favourite manager to be uh, sacked next at six to four. So everybody thinks in agreement with us, he is on borrowed time. Yeah, I'm not surprised whatsoever. The, The way that they are conducting themselves as a team is probably, and again, I'm a Leeds fan. I don't necessarily care, if for want of a better way of putting it, and as a Liverpool fan yourself, I'm sure the pain of watching Manchester United struggle week in and week out isn't something that you're going to lose sleep over. But it's the way that they have been conducting themselves throughout the weekends, throughout the midweek games, the particular behaviour of... Bruno Fernandes, for example, who is essentially a petulant child. He's always irritating to watch, a bit like a rat face, annoying as anything. When he's holding the ball, he's not letting people grab it. It's stuff like that. And then obviously you saw Anthony come on a little bit later into the game. 
Um, I'm trying to think, I think it was Doku who was doing a little bit of skill. Anthony completely throws his toys out of the pram and just starts booting him. And you just think, what what on earth is being taught behind the, the scenes by Ten Hag that your players are getting into this petulant child state and thinking that that's an acceptable thing to do when you are being humbled by the most hated team by your fans? You have to show some sort of spirit and I can show a little bit of aggression, but you don't want to look like a bunch of knobheads in doing that. You want to show, right, pick the ball up, let's show a little bit more, let's get front foot on it, let's get a goal back. Let's look like we're still putting in the effort to just be like, put ball in our net too many times. I don't like it. It's just, it's embarrassing. I think he's he's lost a dressing room personally. Agreed. And if I I had to call it, given how, I don't know if you've been keeping an eye on this, Ajax have had that officially their worst start to a season ever. They fired their manager. They were looking at Man U's assistant boss as their manager. Depending how quickly this moves in the way that we think, it would not surprise me to see Ten Hag go straight back to Ajax if that position Agreed. is still unfilled and man, you pull the trigger on that pretty quickly. I think that's, he obviously did very well there. It was a far better fit than for man, you. Maybe it was just a bit too of a job, a bit too big, a bit too soon. But um, yeah, I can see in the background and you can probably start to see him thinking of, well, if they pull the trigger on me now, it's not that bad because probably Ajax will take me back with open arms. So um, that would be an they're, interesting they're Currently, one. Ajax are currently drawing nil-nil with Volendam. And if you've never heard of Volendam, then it's for good reason. They're not a particularly well-known team. They um, got promoted. They got promoted yeah, exactly. last season exactly. from uh, the Erst division is how bad they are. And they have to say they've been on a shocking run, which is, you know, they're not, haven't sold a load of players like they haven't, they, they often do. I mean, the only player I can think of, I think, that they really sold over the summer that they lost was Kudos to West Ham, who was a very good player, but certainly wasn't, you know, the main man of that team. Um, actually saying that, I think they did sell Timber as well, didn't they, to um, I, uh, Arsenal, Arsenal, who got yeah. injured for the whole season on his first game. Um, but, um, yeah, they certainly weren't decimated like they have been in previous seasons where they lose four or five of their players. So... I don't know what's gone wrong there. The new manager is obviously in the same way as Tenag has just lost the dressing room, but that would seem to be the obvious and perfect fit for me. Man, you bounce him and uh, he goes back to Ajax. Well, the way that, like I say, you're watching Manchester United play at this moment in time, it's equivalent to, let's say, you were a random Irishman on the internet and your phone was left at work and someone took your phone and started looking through your videos and found that you looked after horses. And let's say the horse was the rest of the Premier League, and you were bending over in front of said horse and posting those videos all over Twitter. It's pretty much the equivalent of what it's like to be a Manchester United fan, I think, at this moment in time. I don't know what tweet you're possibly talking about, because <laughs> uh, I don't want to get into bestiality, which uh, seems to be You've what watched you it about five to. different times, don't lie. It's my screensaver. Yeah. Um, You've edited your face onto it. <laughs> onto the horse. Yeah. Um, Chelsea, got to speak about Chelsea because they, just as they seem to be picking up a little bit of momentum and you thought maybe a potch turned it round, uh, they get done 2-0 at home to Brentford. All right, one of the goals was in the very last minute when um, Sanchez had ill-advised and looked like he'd absolutely infuriated Pochettino by going up for a corner and they catch him on the break and basically put it into an open net. Um, but, but that's weirdly, that's not necessarily a massive shock as a result, is it? I think it's the third successive win at Stamford Bridge since they were promoted, it, which is a really weird stat. It is a really weird stat. Here's a weirder stat for you, which is even more impressive. 12 London derbies unbeaten for Brentford, which is an incredible Jesus. stat when you think about who they're playing against. So they yeah, are clearly absolutely. very good at raising their game against the big teams um, in the derbies when it matters. But um, yeah, it wasn't a particular surprise, the shot. I mean, I wouldn't have necessarily said Brentford particularly outplayed them. They took their chance, the first chance well. Chelsea had a lot of the ball. Were I did watch this one because it was the early kickoff. Very ineffectual going forward. Didn't really offer much going forward in terms of a goal threat. Uh, and as I say, got sucker punched at the end and you could see Poch was fucking livid 
with Sanchez for going up for the corner because I don't think he, he he waved him up to do it. But equally, at the same time, at that point, what have you got to lose? If you're losing one nil in the last minute, you might two nil is no difference, is it really? So I can't yeah. really necessarily hold that against him. Um, lovely result for the pool. Lovely, nice and easy as it should be. Three nil cruise against uh, Forest. Um, wouldn't say we played our best football for a lot of the game, but turned it on in spells and beat them as you would expect. And again, if we're going to be challenging for, you know, I think the title is beyond us. I'm not going to lie, but certainly we need to be top four this season. That's the kind of game you've got to win every day. I I remember Forrest beating us last year. Yeah, I'm going to say, yeah. We lost at home. So they beat us last year. So to see us do them and do them convincingly was nice and, we are looking in a pretty good position at the moment, I'm going to tell you. I think with the, the, the midfield refresh that we've had, Darwin coming into form. don't know if you saw his goal yet. Well, I showed you his goal. Absolute you know worldy. Absolute worldy yesterday against Bournemouth to win the game uh, for the Cup and put us through to the uh, semis, was it, I think, through uh, then. So we are progressing in in, in the um, the... Carabao Cup, not that that means much, but uh, it's still a trophy. Um, and yeah, I'm Darwin is looking more and more like Haaland's close Jesus. rival for the second Jesus. best striker in the world at this rate. I can only hope that that is enshrined in a load of nonsense. I mean, Nunes isn't even the top 10 goal scorers of the league, I don't think, is he? No. The answer's no. The answer's no. Uh, he's got four, hasn't he, in the Premier League. Callum Wilson is a better striker than him at this moment in time. He's on seven. So, yeah. Give him time. Um, Give him time. Yeah. Compared to the shit he was getting <laughs> last season, he is Give... making a huge improvement and he is providing an excellent focal point for the way we play. He has got... Eddie and Ketia has scored more goals than Darwin Nunes this season. He got fucking a hat-trick in midweek. If you add in total goals, it, I bet if you looked at total goals over all competitions, so you included the Cups and Europe, where Darwin scored in all of our games, Darwin is probably on far... I'm going to tell you, in fact. So Darwin well, has four, four goals and three assists in nine games in the league. Ooh. Domestic Cups, one goal in two games. International Cups, two goals and assist in three games. So that is what, in total for the season, two, three, seven goals so far this season, which considering he scored nine last season in total, then you look, we're starting to look, it's starting to look like an £85 million player. Seven goals. He's got seven goals, the same as Callum Wilson. In all competitions, that is unbelievable. He's, he's clearly the best striker in the world. Um, I can't talk about it anymore because he's just too good. Let's finish it on, the, as I say, the biggest game of the weekend. Clearly, you'll take a lot of interest in this. And based on the fact that I've just taken the piss out of you, I'm sure that this will be a very non-biased and um, happy conversation that we're bound You've to have You've just changed here. who <laughs> I'll be rooting for tomorrow night now with your comments about Darwin. So, uh, yeah, so, carry on. Obviously, Leeds are playing Leicester. Uh, it is arguably, for me, the two biggest teams in the Championship at this moment in time. It's not first v second, so uh, that's going slightly against what I'm saying. But So I'm going to call you out on that bullshit at the moment because the, the two biggest teams at the moment are clearly first and second, which is Leicester and Ipswich. I didn't say the most informed. I said the two biggest. So Ipswich will ine- inevitably fall away. I'm still sticking with that. Uh, Ed Shearer can go fuck himself. And Leeds-Leicester is that type of game where shouldn't be a, a championship game, in all honesty. It's one of those old adages of they're too big to be in the lower league. They should be in the Premier League. Um, obviously, while Luton are taking both their places and uh, having a really fun time of it in the Premier League. Um, for me, and I know which way you're going to predict this, regardless of me saying that you're going to go either way anyway, it's probably because the form would suggest it's only going to be one winner. Leicester are on an absolutely spectacular run in the Championship at this moment in time. They obviously have made um, the best start to a Championship season ever, I believe. I think of the 14 games, they've played thir- uh, sorry, they've won 13. They've only lost one. They've scored 29 times. They very rarely concede. They've only conceded eight goals and no side has ever 
Leicester have reached 39 points as quickly as Leicester in the Championship. As I say, it's it's the, the best uh, Championship start of all time. Leeds' away form is pretty woeful. They have only won one of their past four away matches, and that was against Norwich. They have suffered uh, defeats against Stoke, and again, they were played off the park by Stoke. They were played off the park by Southampton. It was a pretty poor result there as well. And usually, this type of team would need to, and not just Leeds, but a type of team who wanted to go up in the, the Championship, would need to raise their game in these top games. And if they don't, inevitably, you fall slightly short and you end up with the playoffs. I don't think it's a must-win. I know everyone's going to predict a Leicester win. I don't think it's a must-win for Leeds. And I don't even think it's necessarily a must-not-lose because of the fact that it's so early in the season. But having said that, if Leicester do come away with the points here and Leeds come away with nothing, I would be very confident in saying Leicester are going to win the league because they would be 17 points clear, I believe, at that stage. Even at this early point in the season, 17 points clear away from third is such a ridiculous margin that you would begin to think, yeah, it's it's pretty much done. There's not really much else that you can say about that. On the inverse of that, should Leeds win? I think it changes the complexion of the league entirely. Leicester are no longer completely infallible. They are certainly there to be got at, and Leeds are the team to do it for me because they're very vulnerable on the counter-attack and Leeds are absolutely outstanding at the transitions with Somerville, Ruta, um, Dan James, funnily enough, has been a, a very pivotal part in that. And Not quite so good at penalties, but we'll No, I that. mean, we'll ignore Bamford because if he takes a penalty again, I'll, I'll end up just throwing myself off a bridge and I'll probably get closer to goal than the ball did uh, against Stoke on that night. Um, the only other thing I would say entire league then starts to take a look at it, Leeds' confidence absolutely flies through the roof and you would expect Leeds to then go on a subsequent run with that confidence in the back pocket. Doesn't always work like that, admittedly, in the same way that just because Leicester have won a silly amount of games in a row, it doesn't always mean that they're going to win. I'm going to back Leeds. I have to back Leeds because even if I thought that Leeds wouldn't get trounced, I'd have to back Leeds. But I'm going to go 3-1 Leeds. I think that it will be a very close game. I think it'll be dominated by Leicester. I think Leeds will take their chances and be clinical for once. And I think there'll be a late goal when Leicester are trying to push for a late equaliser to make it 3-1. It's funny you say that because that might be the only thing that we are going to agree on is the score. Uh, I think it'll be 3-1 Leicester. I think I don't disagree with some of what you said, but... Going to Leicester at the form they're in is an incredibly tall order with your away form. If it was at Ellen Road, I would have far more confidence and I could actually see you nicking a, uh, a victory with the way that you're playing on, on the counter-attack. Somerville in particular seems to have taken to the, the championship like a fish to water, clearly too good for that league and is tearing it up. Ruta suddenly sounds, seems to have found a little bit of form, even if he's not quite hitting... Um, the goals that you would hope that he would be hitting. But I just think Leicester at home are a different proposition and I don't see any way that Leeds can probably stop them with the form that they're in. And I think I think it will be close, but I think that extra bit of quality throughout the team that I think we would you'd be hard to disagree with that Leicester have over Leeds in certain positions. Um Vestergaard, for example, I was talking to you, I mean, not so long ago when he was at Southampton, he was super highly rated, went to Leicester, fell off a bit of a cliff. He must be the best centre-back in the league. You know, you put you put him up against Cooper, Stroik, you know, you, you're talking worlds apart. Whoa, um, don't diss Stroik. He's been outstanding this season, especially Rodon as well. Outstanding. He, he, neither of them are, are a Vestergaard. And I think just that extra bit of quality will tell for me and I see him going 17 points clear, personally. Uh, but I don't think Leeds should be too disheartened if they lose because Leicester are so good and in such good form. The only problem for Leeds, obviously, sitting in third at the moment, obviously, if they do lose, that allows everybody else around to catch up and they could then probably slip down to what, I don't know, fifth, sixth, something like that, depending on the other results for the rest of the, for the, rest of the uh, game week. One bet for you, uh, regardless of the result of the game. You know, like we had a, a bit of a fun period of time where 
we would put Furpo on to get yellow card every other game because <laughs> he would walk around and pick up a yellow card for fun. Vestergaard has picked up seven yellow cards so far this season. He's only played 13 games. That's pretty impressive. So that that might, I mean, if, if I don't know if Furpo is playing, but a Furpo-Vestergaard no. double uh, would be a nice uh, little, uh, well, I bet the odds would be dog shit, to be honest with you, given what you just said then. But I didn't know that. But um, yeah, I, I, I'd i like Leeds to win. I, I hope that Leeds win. I just don't see it, if I'm perfectly honest with you. I think it is a step too far with their away form and Le- uh, Leicester's home form and form in general, if I'm honest with you. so I think Leeds are the only team that can stop them. And I think if it does go the way that you're saying and, and Leicester, whether it's a close competition, a close contest, sorry, or, you know, they, they blow Leeds away, either way, I think that is just about done. I think Leeds are the only team that can stop and catch up to them. And I know I appreciate that Ipswich are very, very close and to write off Ipswich would be nonsensical, but I still think that they fall away. And I think Leeds are the only team with the ability in how they play football on the counter-attack and in the transition to get at Leicester because Leicester aren't very pacey at the back. They will push a lot of their team up. And again, I think they'll dominate possession. I don't think it'll be very fun to watch as a Leeds fan unless obviously the result goes our way. But I think Leeds have the tools and I think they're the only team that do have the tools to do it, ironically, saying this, knowing that Leicester have already lost a game this season. But we'll see, we'll see. Fingers um, crossed. I mean, yeah, I, I'm going to get in some beers, I think, in prep for that. And obviously I'll be messaging you shortly after on Friday night to let you know how happy I am that Leeds have just won 3-1 perfectly predicted by myself on this podcast and how I was right and that uh, just randomly throwing in there Darwin Nunes is shit at football um, because oh. I'll be able to say that. <laughs> and on that note, uh, thanks very much for listening as always and we'll speak to you next week. Come on, Leeds. <laughs>